the Accidental Engineer. Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today we are joined by Darren Nelson. Welcome, Darren. Hey, Max. How's it going? Going pretty well. How about you? Uh, not too bad. Can't complain. Right on, right on. I have a little bit of backstory about how Darren has made it onto the show today, which is Darren and I have known each other for a very long time, and we met through some fortuitous events, but uh, both of us had moved to Chicago, where I wasn't a software engineer yet. I wasn't an engineer, period. Uh, however, Darren was, and uh, Darren, among most of our guests, is relatively unique because he's actually a physical engineer as opposed to a software engineer. So for audience that are a little bit curious about what you might be doing now as a engineer in the physical field, uh, Darren, do you mind sharing maybe where you work, your job title, what types of stuff you work on? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a mechanical engineer. Um, I work for NAVC, which is the engineering branch of the United States Navy. Um, and I'm a systems engineering manager for a large deck amphibious ship, which is kind of like a mini aircraft carrier. Um, and I manage the propulsion, the design and construction of the propulsion system for the ship. So gas turbines, shafts, propeller, uh, rudder. And then I, I kind of cross pollinate with some other uh, the control systems group and uh, electrical group and stuff like that. I'll elaborate a little bit more on the diversity of Darren's background here, which is that Darren has worked at beer breweries like Dogfish Head, which yep. many of our audience may be familiar with. Another pl another project that Darren's worked on is on the Oakland airport, uh, yep. one of the major metro airports, international airports in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, but for audience that are curious about the variety of engineering projects you've worked on um do you mind drilling into some of them or 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 things i may have missed yeah, yeah sure. um i started out my career in consulting um for a big consulting firm um working on hydroelectric power plants so i kind of helped uh design mechanical systems for um, some hydroelectric power plants they're building in um kentucky Indiana and Ohio on the Ohio River. Um, and then uh, with that company, I worked on the Panama Canal expansion. Um, so two years, two, three years ago, I think now, uh, they completed that. So they had to widen it to allow the super, super max cargo ships to get through there. Um, they were losing, the country of Panama was losing all their, uh, income because the ships would just go all the way around uh, South America instead of through there. So I worked on that. Um, then I worked for the Port of Oakland at Oakland Airport um, and helped on some projects there. And then I moved back to the East Coast uh, to work for Dogfish Head as a project engineer, which is kind of like a jack of all trades engineer. So I, it kind of just threw me into process engineering, um, manufacturing engineering, packaging, uh, civil engineering, like pretty much you name it, um, and got did a little bit of everything there. And then, um, you know, working at a brewery is pretty pretty fun, but you know sometimes real life kind of hits you. And uh, so, ended up taking this job with the Navy, which has turned out pretty good too. So, when it comes to how you first got into engineering, uh, mechanical engineering, civil engineering, these are fields that require a bit more credential uh, credentialing and 
formal education and then maybe software engineering. Uh, how did you first get into engineering as a academic and then professional field? Yeah, um, you know, when I was younger, like in junior high and high school, like I, I grew up working on cars with my dad and I like to tinker around with stuff and I was pretty good at math and science. So kind of everybody would always be like, oh, you should, you should be an engineer. Like that'd be a good career path for you. And um, I, you know, I always wanted to be like either like a car designer or like a bicycle designer or something like that. Um, so I went to school for mechanical engineering. Turns out that if you want to be a designer, you should probably go into industrial design and not engineering. Um, but I stuck with it and uh, ended up where where I am today. And I, you know, I I really enjoy it. I think uh, a lot of times when you're I mean, when you're young, when you're in your teenage years, if you don't have a good mentor or somebody that you can really like, I, I didn't really know anybody that was an engineer. So I didn't really have a good idea of like what engineer engineers did. And there's so many different kinds. Um, so, you know, I, it, it, you know, I, I just, it just kind of, I don't want to say fell in my lap, but you know, I kind of just stuck with it and, and. I actually really like what I do now, so I, I can't really complain. But um, yeah, it, it, it it's a weird path I took. Um, when I graduated college, I was the first graduating class of the recession, 2009. Um, so the job pickings were really slim. Um, the, the year before me, the graduating class before me, engineers were getting like three, four, five job offers and could pretty much like take their pick and it came time for us to start looking for jobs and if if people got like one offer they were lucky so a lot of a lot of my classmates and colleagues ended up going to grad school right after um undergrad which in engineering isn't always a, a path people take um usually if you go to grad school as like a mechanical or electrical or civil engineer, you're really trying to narrow your focus onto something really specific, uh, nanotechnology or like biomedical engineering or like things like that. Um, so it's kind of not always the best path to go straight from undergrad into grad school if you don't really know what you like or what you want. So I was lucky enough to have a couple internships and they offered me a job um when i lived in chicago so so i took that um definitely wasn't what i was expecting um when i graduated to do um doing consulting and working on hydroelectric power plants uh you know i don't think any 16 year old imagines that's going to be like their first job or anything like that but uh i learned a ton there and and uh really appreciate the opportunity from them and and it really helped me grow to where where i am today so um, what was what was the difference between your expectation as a 16 year old and what the reality was like? I mean, was I guess the distinction may, might be that you weren't expecting to work on power plants or, or the Panama Canal or what, what was the distinction, I guess? I, I think uh, if you if a lot of people kind of have a misconception about what an engineer does, um, they see like Mythbusters or something like that and think like, oh, those are engineers or they're doing engineering, like building something 
building a prototype and testing it and then whatever. But that there are engineers that do that, but a lot of engineering is um, doing calculations, writing technical specifications. Um, that's a big part of engineering and they don't even really touch on that in college. Um, all construction projects, schools, hospitals, houses, power plants, like they're, they're all based on a specification that engineers write, firms write. And so that's, that's like a huge part of it. And same thing with making the physical drawings so that the uh, contractors and construction workers can actually build all the stuff that needs to get done. So, you know, it was kind of a shock to me when they're like, I, I'm sitting in an office all day. There's no lab or like shop or, or anything like that. And you're just on a computer and you're reading a lot of stuff and you're going to different technical standards. Um, Google, like half of my job is being able to Google really well, even now, like finding the right standards, the right version looking up an old version that is referenced, you know, could be 50 years old, um, especially in the, in the Navy and the government. Um, a lot of standards haven't changed in like 50, 60 years. I think uh, propeller, the propeller standard we used was written in like 1945. So um, it's a lot of just like, you're almost like a detective and like an information detective. You got to find stuff, piece it all together. Um, so it's just like, it's just a different, you know, I think it's a lot, I thought it was a lot more glamorous than it actually is. It can be like a lot of like grunt work. So there are, and I did get opportunity to be a field engineer, which is like, um, um, it's a lot, it's definitely more hands-on. I think that it kind of, it's kind of more what uh, people expect engineers are. Um, you're kind of, when you see like a, a stock photo and there's guys in hard hats looking at blueprints and pointing at stuff, that's kind of like what a field engineer does. Um, so getting a good combination of like the office work and field work, um, really helps like round you out as an engineer and you can, you learn a ton by being out in the field and sitting with contractors, electricians, plumbers, um, concrete guys, like you, you kind of learn what's, what works and what doesn't from their end. You know, you can draw a line on a piece of paper and say like this pipe needs to go from X to Y to Z. And in real life, that's just like not feasible. And so you kind of learn how, how to kind of work around that kind of stuff. So, um, there, yeah, there's some scary parallels, maybe not scary, just close parallels between what you're describing and the office work you do as a, as an engineer, when it comes to being really good, good at Googling, um, with software engineers, I, I tell people, that I probably spend, I mean, probably 40, 50% of my time in meetings, but the, the rest of it is spent reading what are technically specifications, like how to use existing software to build new software. So a lot of on-the-job skills for software engineers are how good are you at Googling stuff, not do you have it in your brain on, at, on the moment, or uh, probably 30% of my time is spent reading. <laughs> yeah no same here i mean i'll be in meetings and i might not have all the answers but you know give me like a half a day or something and i can probably find them for you and i think that's half the battle um you know just being confident that confident enough to tell somebody you don't know the answer right now but you can find it for them and then like following up in a 
timely manner and doing that, um, I think that is really important, at least in my job. Um, something you, I don't, I won't hold you to remembering this, but something you told me eight or nine years ago around when we first met that I've kept in the back of my mind and has kind of guided me in my software engineering career was you were telling me about how on your first job, there were uh, people in your office who would ask, you know, the, the entry level employees, can you do this certain task in AutoCAD, the computer aided design software? And if you said yes, you'd be known as the CAD person. And so you needed to be selective about whether you said yes to certain people's requests because it meant you would or would not be known by having that skill. And so you would get slated that type of work. And I've kept it in the back of my head for a long time as a software engineer because it's perhaps even more true in software engineering is are you someone who will take on certain tasks? And that can be a good thing for sure and might you know cultivate skills that give you better compensation in the long run. Or it can be a bad thing where you get slotted into make work type of tasks. And I was wondering if I realize you told me that eight or nine years ago, but um, you've had eight or nine years of additional work experience at this point as an engineer. Is that still true? Are there, are there, are there still tasks that are like high value versus low value in what you do uh, in your last few jobs? Uh, I think, I think it's still definitely still relevant. Um, I was lucky when I was a entry level engineer to have like a good mentor that kind of told me, Hey, just, just watch out for this kind of stuff. Like you don't, you know, if you like doing AutoCAD and you want to do it for your whole life, that's fine. But if that's not really your thing, just, you know, be careful. So I, I, in all the jobs I've been in, I've definitely seen people end up pigeonholed into something and, by having a conversation with them, kind of seeing that they may, might not be happy with that role. Um, at the same time, you just got to balance not seeming like somebody who doesn't want to do anything or, you know, not willing to take on something you don't know. Totally. Um, <laughs> so it, it's definitely a, it's definitely a balance. I, I think I've been, a, I've been lucky to not get pigeonholed into too many things, but also I, I came in, when I worked for Dogfish Head Brewery, I came in and there was two other engineers and I by far had the most AutoCAD experience. So I kind of became like the default resource for that. Um, so I had to like kind of make some uh, clear um, boundaries of like, I'm not going to do this for you, but like if you need help with it, like I'll sit down and like, like kind of like, uh, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day, teach a man a fish and he'll eat forever or whatever. Similar thing. Like, um, now w in my role, uh, with, with, with NAVSI at the Navy, um, I'm by far the youngest member of my team. You know, there, most of the people on my team have been the government for 20 or 30 years. Um, so a lot of the software that we do use is new to them. Um, 3d modeling software, um, some of the uh, like just cloud database type stuff. Um, so I, I kind of go out of my way to since since I'm new to the role and to the team to make myself more valuable by like volunteering to take some of the stuff on like, yeah, I'll, I'll like sit 
down with you guys and like kind of show you how to use this and and you know so you kind of got you just gotta find a good balance between like taking on stuff but not not being pigeonholed so um i i think that advice has served me well i'm glad you still uh you <laughs> took my advice from a long time ago um well, we were both pretty young back then so I, I in part mention it because I think our, our audience would benefit from heeding that advice because there's definitely areas in software engineering where uh, there's more unmet demand for certain skills. And one of the things I've harped on on this podcast is repeatedly mentioning how your current job teaches you the skills that qualify you for your next job. And if you are, you know, rehashing work that you've done in, over the many years, maybe maybe you're getting compensated very well for it, but do keep in the back of your mind, are you doing the work that you want to be doing or getting skilled at the work you want to be doing in your next roles or in the next year? Um, and so what you told me eight or nine years ago is I've definitely, I've definitely kept with it. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you about in the realm of um, physical engineering as a mechanical engineer, it, this is less common in software engineering fields, but how different is it working in private consulting, uh, versus working for the government? And I realize there's certain things that are just globally true, but maybe specific to engineering, being a consulting engineer versus being a government engineer. Yeah. I mean, they're worlds apart for sure. Um, consulting is definitely, more fast-paced, um, it's very client-based and like sales-based. So you're always trying to win new work and create a work backlog, basically. Um, so that way, when you finish one project, you have another one backing it up. And when you do that, a lot of times it can cause issues where you have like too much backlog and not enough staff, not enough manpower. So then you kind of get overworked. You're kind of always at the uh, mercy of your client. So if they, you know, call you on a Friday and want something, you're staying over the weekend to get it for them. The government is pretty much the exact opposite of that. Um, deadlines are very long and loose. Um, I had a hard time when I tra transitioned to working for the government because I was so used to getting deliverables back very quickly and people a lot of times the people that I've worked with in the government are just a little slower in being responsive so if you need to contact a subject matter expert or you know a different an engineer of a different group or whatever um, you know instead of getting that answer in a couple hours it might be a couple days or even like a couple weeks um, so it's just it's a it's a lot slower I think Working as a consultant first in my career has helped me build better relationships when I transitioned um, to the Port of Oakland and Dogfish and the government where I was hiring the consultants to help me with work because I know their struggle. So, you know, I, I was able to, I, you know, I'll tell them like, hey, I need this, but like, if you don't get it to me today, it's not the end of the world. Um, and I think a lot of times the engineers I've worked with really appreciate 
that somebody like understands because a lot of time a lot of times people get a government job and and that's it they're in that for life and and that might even be have been their first job so they really don't have any idea um what it's like on the other side and and so um you know i i kind of want to make sure that i kind of balance balance it since since i have a little bit looser deadlines you know i don't have to push them as hard so um yeah it, it's a different world but at the same time the government it's very strict right i can't like you can't really people can't take you out to lunch for like a business lunch and you know travel is super tight you get a really small per diem um versus in consulting you know you have uh sales guys coming in all the time trying to get you to spec out their products and taking you out to lunch and football games and uh you know your company has like a giant christmas party and open bar and all that and the government you don't get any of that so um it's just different worlds and and the other the other big thing actually with the government um is i'm in a union so um it's you don't really hear a lot about like engineers being unionized but with the port of oakland um and with uh, the navy we're unionized so you know i get paid overtime um vacation and holidays and all that stuff that's all in like an mou um in consulting sorry, sorry, you don't have any leverage one sec what's a what's an mou <laughs> Uh, memorandum of understanding. It's like basically the contract uh, union signs with the uh, the employer. Got it. Um, Got it. So so in consult like so there, there's trade offs to both. Um, uh, so yeah, I, you know, I'm used to the faster pace. So sometimes uh, I, I get a little little bogged down by the slow pace of the government. But um, a lot of people are in worse off situations than me, so I try not to complain about it too much. Totally. Uh, what, one of the things I'm curious about, maybe contrasting the consulting work you did as a private sector employee versus the work you now do in the government, is what what happens when a project fails? And, and maybe we can separate or distinguish between failure being like a missed deadline versus failure being like structural failure or, uh, or a component failure. Um, is, is there, is there a big difference? Like is there legal liability that you have as a private sector employee versus a public one? Like in software, the reason I bring it up is that failure there, there are cases of lawsuits. I mean, you hear about like privacy lawsuits now these days with Facebook and whatnot and Google and whatnot, mm-hmm. but they're, they're not quite on the, the scale of physical harm that happens with perhaps physical engineering projects like the Navy. So what, what is, what does failure look like? And, and how does, how does that shit roll downhill differently if you're in private sector versus public sector? Oh, I mean, that's that's a pretty complex question. Um, private sector, I think it depends on what sector you're in. Um, I think really with, with like mechanical engineering or like even electrical engineering, um, you kind of have your private sector who are like developing equipment. So like pumps or like bicycles or like brake rotors or whatever. And then... And, and then you have your um, 
construction, really like construction. They call it MEP, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, um, which is all like building focused roads, power plants, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, 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 um, I'm sure you're aware there's, there is like a light, like mechanical, electrical, civil engineers can go through a licensing process and get their professional engineering license, PE license. Um, every state, it's a little different how they do the requirements, but every state has one. Um, and, and they kind of break that down into a couple different categories based on, like if you're a mechanical engineer, there's uh, three different tests you can take. Um, one is more like uh, machine design focused. One is more MEP focused. So it's like thermodynamics and fluid mechanics. And one is HVAC focused, which is like basically a whole nother sector of like mechanical engineering. That's kind of like a very weird one that I don't think you'd meet any like freshman in college telling you they wanted to go into like HVAC <laughs> engineering, but it's, it's super like, important. It's like air conditioning and ventilation, right? Yep. Yep. Um, but so, like, if you're in uh, a private company, um, let's just say, like, uh, like an automotive company like Ford or something, um, most of their engineers probably don't have a PE license. Um, they're, they're developing their products and, and assembling them and testing them and all that, and, um, if, and they bring that to market, and if that product fails or has issues or whatever it hits their bottom line and it opens them up to like a class action lawsuit. So that's, you know, like a recall, you know, paying out for damages and things like that. Um, rarely do those type of engineers get like prosecuted criminally. Um, I think it's very difficult to prove that. Um, on the flip side, uh, if you're working for a consulting firm that's um, designing, let's say like a power plant, Pretty much all the engineers or all the drawings that are delivered to the clients, uh, so whoever's building the power plant, will be stamped by a professional engineer. And that's pretty much a requirement for like any building that you build is having like a stamped drawing. And that basically puts liability on the engineer who stamps it. And it's basically saying, um, if I stamp this, I'm approving this design and I can be held liable if there's a catastrophic failure. Um, so um, when you get your license, you know, you, you're not just like going around stamping things willy nilly. I mean, you really <laughs> want to make sure what you're doing is, you know, is, is not going to come back to, to bite you. Um, on the government, the government side, it's a little different. Um, you're still, on the building side, you're you're usually hiring a consultant to deliver you drawings and stuff like that. So they'll be the ones on the hook. But for the Navy, um, if something doesn't, if something fails, I mean, it sounds morbid, but like sailors could die. I mean, and 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 really, you you get the heat more from like Congress and constituents um, and admirals and, and, and things like that, um, than necessarily like a criminal liability. I mean, there still could be some there, but, but really that's more, more of what it comes down to outside of like defense. Um, it, it's the government just works a little differently. So everything's fun funded by usually funded by 
you know, tax money. So um, you really respond. You really the Congress really and and even broadly like you or I are like I'm I'm uh, we're the class. We're, yeah, we yeah. Would, we would be the class action uh, exactly. lawsuit members. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's really different. Um, I think a lot a, a big difference. I think from software and and you see this come up a lot when people talk about Tesla and how they're they're very so, like software based in their um, engineering, like in their pro- engineering process. You know, they kind of like just roll it out and then like debug it as as like people are driving it versus like Ford and Chevy and, and those companies kind of do it the opposite way where they like basically build up the whole thing and then they test it like unbelievably every scenario as much as possible and get like everything, like all the kinks out of it before they even think about selling it to the public. Mm. Um, so it, it's definitely a different, there's a lot more like um, in engineering 101 or whatever, when you're in college, they talk about safety factors. And basically like when, when you're doing a design, whether it's like a pumping system or a, a part, like a gear or like whatever, usually build in a safety factor that can be as little as like 10% additional, um, to like double or usually they say if human humans are involved. So like a person can get hurt or killed, you like minimum double the safety factor. So like, let's say you have uh, a hook that should hold like a hundred pounds. Well, you would actually design it to 200 pounds, but you would say it it's like rated for a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why people like, I, I kind of have these discussions with people like, they'll be like, Oh my like thing from like 1920, like it'll never die. Like, they, the things they make today are like crappy and it's like well those engineers back then like they didn't have computers and 3d models and stuff like that so they really can't they couldn't be very precise with their calculations so their like safety factors were like five and ten so everything was very robust um, if you don't really need a safety factor that high like why spend the money and material to do that so um, it's it's a it's, you know yeah, no, totally. There's a there's a previous guest of the show, Sean Higby, who works for Lawrence Livermore Labs and, and works mm-hmm. on works on satellite uh, design. And one of the one of the terms he used was, and I might be butchering this, is like a marginal noticeable difference. And so maybe maybe it's, it's a similar metric to safety factor, but um, if if you can't tell the difference between, you know, a tire that's a half inch thick versus an inch thick, make it a half inch because that's cheaper. It requires yeah, less rubber. Exactly. And uh, what's interesting about what you're saying right now is I can't think of a of a safety metric in software. I mean, I there there are. I I should I should walk that back a sec because when it comes to a, a safety metric or a, a safety factor. One of the common thrown around metrics in software is called code coverage. It refers to mm-hmm. whether you've written um, software tests, which is software independent of the software product you're giving to customers. 
um, software tests that actually evaluate portions of your software to verify its behavior. And so code coverage as a, as a measure is a percentage. So how many lines of code in your software are evaluated as part of your tests? And that metric is, is easily uh, criticized because percentages are not, uh, are not proportional or weighted by whether a certain portion of the code base is more important than another. Like yep. one portion of your code base might be governing, you know, the MCAS system on Boeing 737 Maxis, <laughs> where yep. Yep. so you might not have any code coverage on that portion, and that might only be five percent of your code base. So you might be able to say I have ninety-five percent code coverage, but you might not have code coverage on you know the most important part of your system, and your plane might crash. So. As far as a safety factor goes, I'm having I'm struggling to come up with a decent parallel to what you just described, which makes a lot of sense. Which is uh, that there's some some give to your system to allow for you know deviations from what the expected environment is, or the expected runtime environment is, to use a software term of your system, yeah. like temperature. Let's say temperature is probably a common example, or um, Waves. I don't. I don't even know how you would simulate waves for for the Navy, but I imagine that's that's got its own team in your oh, yeah. workplace. It definitely does. Definitely does. And I mean, you you had. I think um, with mo with more, I guess, traditional engineering, you know, you can't necessarily consider every scenario that there's going to be because otherwise, you would never. Nothing would ever get designed because you keep coming up with new scenarios and things that could happen. So you usually try to find like the, you know, the most likely or most probable range. So like you're talking about waves. Um, a lot of the systems on the ship are designed for like a certain uh, sea state it's called. So it's like a wave height, uh, wind speed, temperature range. Um, and so everything's like designed within that range. So like you know, in theory, if that state is higher or lower or different, um, the stuff might not work, but each individual component is probably going to have some sort of little bit of safety factor built in, and those could all kind of compound on each other where it still might cover, you know, it's still likely that it could cover beyond those limits. But, but it's not, I guess, guaranteed by the manufacturer and the engineer and et cetera, et cetera, that, that it will. Um, that's why, like, people will be like, oh, I, like, you know, I ran my blender at, like, 10 for, like, 20 minutes, and the motor didn't burn out, even though they said it would burn out after five minutes. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, sure, but they're not going to guarantee that you can do that. So what, what, I, I know you and I have had discussions a little bit about, uh, like, standards and, and specifications for for software and, and the difference between traditional engineering and software. Um, a lot of like my job um, and a lot of my jobs, you know, we use, there's so many different organizations. Um, and, and you had mentioned in one of uh, your previous podcasts about the uh, chemical safety board videos. And I really got into those um, <laughs> and they reference a lot of standards, uh, uh, national fire protection agency, NFPA, um, is a big one. I mean, OSHA, but, um, 
There's like, you know, ASME, which is American Society for Mechanical Engineers. They have like a whole thing called like boiler code, which is like for pressure vessels. Um, so like there's all these organizations like that have been around for like 100 years. A lot of them are 50 years um, that have been developing standards um, and testing, doing testing and, and um, you know, investigating disasters and stuff like that. So that when, you know, an, a mechanical engineer goes to um, design a tank to put underground to store gas or whatever, they have, like, all this information available that, to them to, like, design it to a standard where it won't um, blow up or leak or anything like that. And that also kind of covers the engineer then because they can say, look, I designed this to the standard, so if it failed, like, it must have been something like freak or completely like unaccounted for, um, and, and like you know, we'll have to see, and then maybe we'll have to update the standard again. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I know we've talked about software isn't really as mature in that aspect, correct? That is correct. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I think it'll get there. I mean, it it has to. I you know, a hundred. A hundred years ago when people were making Henry Ford's making Model T and stuff, there was no standard or like, you know, in New York, there was no like fire, like sprinkler code for buildings or like Chicago where I grew up and where we lived, like the great Chicago fire, the whole city burned down. Right. Well, then people started thinking about fire codes a little like more seriously. So, you know, a lot of times it can take a tragedy to really get that ball rolling, which is unfortunate, but that's kind of how, how it goes sometimes. One of the parallels I can draw with software engineering, maybe not when it comes to standards in the way that we might talk about um, fire safety standards, but actually before we move on, I just want to give a shout out again to the Chemical Safety Board YouTube channel <laughs> because those videos are awesome and do go a long way to describing the kinds of operational engineering safety issues that arise um, that impact, you know, physical safety of people in their communities. Like one of their, one of my favorite videos of theirs is their Richmond uh, oil refinery, which is oh, yeah. not, not far from where both Darren oh. and I lived in, in the San Francisco Bay area. But it's the, I think the main oil refinery of the San Francisco Bay area. And they had a, an incident where a, a pipe hadn't been uh, monitored as uh, frequently as it was prescribed to be. And it uh, had eroded and, the fire, the fire, the fire team, I guess. Yeah. Uh, they were poking it with sticks basically. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, mean, that's like what they were trying to strip off insulation yeah. and like, Oh my God. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll link that episode of the, in the show notes, but yeah, what, I, good wa one. what I wanted to mention about uh, standards and software is that one of the things that's, that's really interesting in software engineering I mean, since its inception is how aggressive the competition is for competing standards. Like back mm -hmm. in the 80s, back in the 90s, people in the marketplace can decide whether you buy a Windows machine or a Macintosh. And that's true today. Um, but in the job market and with employers making decisions about what maybe programming language to use, there's a lot of competition about which uh, which programming languages will be dominant, you know, in the next decade or two to come. And a lot of people are staking out their careers on it. And, and I, I find that a really interesting field is 
while it might not be quite as quite the same as maybe standards and fire safety or uh, ocean wave state, uh, <laughs> there's yeah. de- there's definitely parallels and. Uh, if you're choosing between writing your next website using Python or choosing to write an app for iPhone versus Android, you're dealing with the same type of issues that Darren's describing, where maybe one platform is better known for being more stable. Um, I mean, in truth, one of the decisions people make when deciding to build an iPhone app or an Android app is uh, how much you know money is there sloshing around. Uh, among people who own iPhones, like, will they buy your app more than Android users might? Like, are there more Android users who have their credit cards on file? Like, those types of economic decisions weigh on whether people adopt a certain standard, like building software for Android or iPhone. So while there might not be physical safety uh, quite as much in software, there's definitely a very competitive market over standards going on. And it's pretty exciting to watch. Yeah, and that's actually pretty relevant to my job now because the ship I work on, I mean, its service life is like 40 or 50 years. So one of the big things we have to take into account is like obsolescence of equipment, right? Um, Like, you know, a pump, pump technology doesn't really change. Like a pump's a pump, you know. The breakthroughs in like pump technology are like so small and incremental that like the pump that we spec out now and gets installed like 40 years from now, it's probably not going to be that much different. But we're also we have like a control. There's a machinery control system in MCS, um, and you know that's built on a a, a, co- a code, and and that's a big thing. Is like, well, is this in 10 years, is this still going to be like supported in 20 years? Is this still going to be supported? Like, um, and we have a lot of discussions about, you know, do we get something custom? Do we get something off the shelf? Um, and then with government contracts, especially defense ones, a lot of times, you know, companies have to sign an agreement that says like, we'll support this for 20 years or whatever like that. Otherwise, the government will sue you. Um, so it's actually really relevant to, to, to my work now. Um, cause it's so much, you know, you're, you know, when you're developing an app, you're hoping it's popular for like a year or two, a couple years, maybe not like 40 years, you know? So, um, it, it's kind of crazy. Well, the phrase that is commonly thrown around in software businesses to describe the exact decision-making process you're describing is, it's called build versus buy. And people early in their careers and throughout their careers deal with a lot of uh, incorrect decisions uh, mm. made, made about whether to build in-house versus buying from an external vendor. Yeah. Uh, and there's a whole slew of acronyms to describe this, uh, one of which is NIH syndrome or not invented here syndrome, which is... <laughs> It's used to slander software teams that have a proclivity to build things in-house when they really should use popular uh, public solutions. That yeah. might, that might cost money, but the truth is that maybe these employees uh, haven't given the public options a fair shake, 
or maybe they have a self-interest in job security along the lines that you were alluding to with how the government decides upon contracts is if uh, if a vendor might not exist in five years or can't, won't commit to a 20-year contract, that means that you're going to be squeezed in the future when you can't find that part. And maybe you're going to have to pay exorbitant sums to you know, keep that part in inventory so that the boats can sail. So the, I par- mean, the parallel there is real. It would, it would blow your mind how often that it happens, actually. Um, and you'd be very upset with how much tax money gets spent on, on things like that. So um, that's definitely relevant. And, and I think in my role as an engineer, not so much with the government because things are so very well defined, but like when I worked for the brewery, um, and that's like a pretty fast paced environment, but knowing when you're kind of like out of your element and it's better off, you're better off, um, soliciting input or even like a consultant or something on something be- on, on a project, because at the end of the day, you know, like if it's their job day in, day out to do this, you know, they're likely going to be like an expert on it and, and, and that it's going to be, you're going to end up with a better result than if like I'm trying to design a refrigeration system that I, you know, taught myself how, how to do <laughs> from YouTube you know, videos, instead of, <laughs> you know, instead of spending the extra, however, a couple thousands of dollars to, to, you know, have somebody, you know, come in and, and do it for us. So you, you kind of balance that cause it, it, it is a cost thing too, but I think if you can really, make those decisions and be able to communicate them to, to the people that have the purse strings, right? Like, you know, if you want to, you know, you have to, you know, know when like, Hey, this is something that, that we can really tackle ourselves and be successful versus like, we got to bring in the the big guns here because like we're way out of our element. Um, I think that's learning. You, you definitely got to have a, the, the, the few jobs I've had, um, they gave me a pretty long leash to to kind of work the, those things out myself and learn learn that. Um, if you don't ever get that opportunity, I think you either lack the confidence or you're overconfident in that stuff, and that usually does not end up super well. Fair enough. Fair enough. Maybe for our audience that are curious about the brewery side of things, what are what are some of the unique or relatively unique engineering problems when it comes to brewing beer? Oh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> I mean, so the situation I was in was the Dogfish Heads Brewery was um, the facility was used to be an old canning factory that they bought. So a lot of the infrastructure, like utility-wise, electricity, um, sewer, water, all that was already there. Um, but then they had to build the, the beer infrastructure. So um, a lot of projects were just like trying to figure out what the old stuff was, how, how big it was or its capacity, where it was, um, like a lot of like tracking down circuits and pipes and, and things like that. And, and then working with um, limitations of like how much water the city will give you and like how much waste you can dump into their sewers. Um, on like the, the process side of things, beer brewing is a very, um, 
clean and you want a very clean environment to brew, brew beer. Um, basically anytime beer gets messed up, it's because it gets contaminated and it can be from oxygen or bacteria or whatever. So, so your goal is really to make everything as clean as possible. So a lot goes into really a lot goes into figuring out how every part of the process system so the pipes and the valves and the pumps and everything can get thoroughly cleaned and you don't have like dead legs which are like parts of pipe if you watch those chemical safety board videos they talk about dead legs a lot um they're parts of pipe where like liquid kind of stagnates because they're like isolated um so you always want to avoid dead legs um so things like that and then on the packaging side it's it's really about um just getting equipment that packages how you want, you know, in the style you want, like six pack, 12 pack, whatever. And like at the rates you need and to be compatible with, you know, how this beer is scheduled and brewed and, and all that. So there, there's quite a bit that goes into it. Um, you know, I think every moderately big size brewery or Sierra Nevada's and dogfishes and stone um, those places they'll probably they probably have two or three engineers on staff to to kind of facilitate if they ever like want to put in a new packaging line or new tanks or take all the old ones or something like something like that. The engineers will will be working on stuff like that for sure. Um, I'm hoping yeah. that the statute of limitations is passed on this and we can talk about it. But do you have any particular um what we call production incidents in software engineering that you can share that maybe were the most horrifying uh, moments in your career? Production incidents. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the biggest one that comes to mind for me was definitely at the brewery. Um, and one thing about working at a brewery is you have a ton of chemicals to clean stuff. So you have like acids, um, Caustics, which is like uh, a very basic, uh, basic as in like on the pH low, scale, low, low pH, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, chemical um, and sanitizer and stuff like that. So all that stuff has to get piped like across the brewery into like mixing tanks, and we had to, we were replacing all that piping because we we're building an expansion. So all that piping had to be like drained and flushed out and then cut into and there was a shutdown scheduled for a Saturday. And one of the big things working at any sort of production facility is like as an engineer, you're really driven by like the timelines of production. So like, you know, if I have to be there from like midnight to four in the morning, because that's the only like gap in production, that's when it is. So we were able to like schedule a time, to basically the whole brewery would have to be shut down to do this chemical stuff. And I was actually filling in for one of the other engineers because he had just had a kid. And um, we got there. We had a whole crew of pipe fitters and welders um, and our maintenance guys. And the brewers had shut everything down. And they cut into, like, the first pipe, and it hadn't drained at all. So, like, there was acid, like, spilling out everywhere. And so I, I basically like, yeah, I had to call, like, I basically stopped all work. I like made everybody clear the area I had to call the safety manager. 
I call like the head of brewing and be like, guys, like we can't do this this weekend. Like this shutdown's going to have to last longer because we got to basically like, uh, re-weld up the pipe. So we got to basically like flush this pipe out, re-weld it up and then figure out why it didn't get flushed all the way before, because there was two other pipes that were, um, also needed to get cut into. And so like, I wasn't confident that those had been flushed out. And so it was like making a tough call of like, well, this, like this might impact production for a couple of days and that's thousands of dollars of production. They're not going to get to do, but like if the safety of somebody's on the line, you know, you got to make that call, especially like as an engineer, cause I'm, you're the one responsible. So I think that was the hardest. Um, everybody was fine. It was all, safe we got it all put back together um i think they only lost a day or two um and i mean like even if somebody I, I this didn't happen to me but like i was willing to go into a meeting with the head of production the owner whoever and just be like you can yell at me all you want but like i wanted i didn't want anybody to get hurt and at the end of the day that's the most important thing and i'd rather you know i'll take that heat all day just knowing that like somebody's not going to get like acid burns or anything like that. So, um, that's definitely the, the, the worst there's, a, you know, there's always like more like minor funny incidents that happen at breweries. There was a brewer that um, there's like little sample ports on every tank where they take samples and test them and all that good stuff. And uh, instead of like opening the valve or like twisting it, like you would like your garden, garden hose or whatever, he decided to, uh, they use these things called tri-clamps in breweries, which are like ways to put, put valves on and off that are sanitary. And like, it's pretty easy to take a valve on and off. Um, and he decided to take the whole valve off instead. So he basically like emptied a whole tank onto the floor. Cause like once it gets going, I mean, this tank's like 30 feet tall. Like, so yeah, that was pretty <laughs> funny. I will say so. I missed working at a brewery because I worked with a ton of contractors. So like, um, pipe fitters, welders, electricians, um, construction workers, you know, and these guys are, you know, they're blue collar workers and, and, you know, they, they kind of, they have like a, a different attitude related to, especially engineers. They don't always love them. Um, cause a lot of, a lot of engineers are, are, you know, I went to school for four years. Like I'm smart. Like you got to listen to what I say. And, and they kind of have a chip on their shoulder about that. Um, so you kind of got to like, you know, just don't be an asshole to them. Sorry. Can I swear? Sorry. I yeah, swore, of course. But, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, like show. they're people too. And, and, <laughs> and they like, they know more about like welding up pipe than you do for sure. Um, but the best part about working at a brewery is that at like every paycheck, we'd get a case of beer, which is awesome. Okay. But you get so much free, like extra labor by offering a case of beer. Like I, like if I had something like that, I had like an electrician working on and like, I really wanted it done that day, even though they're supposed to like, go home at three o'clock. I could be like, Hey, can you guys like stay and finish this up? I'll give you a case of beer. No problem. Would not get charged for it. Like they would <laughs> do it in a heartbeat. Like you'd be so surprised how much work people will do for a case of beer. Like my job now, I definitely can't like tell 
the shipbuilder, like, hey, can you guys, like, do this for me for a case of beer? Not only, like, <laughs> can I not give them the case of beer, but then I would get in trouble by, like, the government. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, to be fair, I, I can't think of a previous employer of mine that could, you know, gift software to anybody <laughs> in exchange for, you know, staying past whatever hour. I mean, the, the go-to is buying boxes of pizza, which is which is yeah. a sad state of affairs. Definitely can't buy well, alcohol. <laughs> the ironic thing, too, is like a lot of these guys are like Bud Light. Like that's the only beer they drink. But if they can get a free case of beer, they don't care. Like yeah. IPA, whatever, they don't care. They'll take it for sure. So, <laughs> so I do miss that. It definitely made that part of the job a lot easier. Um, mm-hmm. But it also, I mean, that job had a lot of challenges. And there was a grow, it still is a growing company. And they were kind of reaching the point like, it's hard. I mean, you don't really think of a brewery as a startup, but they basically were getting to that point where they were transitioning from startup to like big, big corporation, basically. So there was a lot of turnover, especially at the higher levels of like having to bring in people with a lot more experience at like the corporate level. Mm. Um, so that was actually one of the reasons why I left because I didn't, I didn't really see my position growing any further. Um, that way but um yeah so you know fair enough beer is, beer is good beer is good i guess yeah. <laughs> i think that's a good note to close out on definitely <laughs> thanks for coming on darren it's been Dude, awesome. thanks for having me this is my uh, first ever podcast so i'm pretty happy I, i'm a big podcast listener i love your podcast oh thanks uh, man so i appreciate it i really i really do enjoy your podcast um i feel like me and my wife, Katie, uh, we listen all the time and like, I'll always be like, Oh, did you listen to like the podcast? Like this person was on and they talked about this. And like, so I really, I really keep it up, man. It's, it's really good. Oh man. That's so nice of you to say. <laughs> if, if people want to show love to, to this episode, feel free. <laughs> that, yeah. that might mean, you know, promoting it, sharing it wherever, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever, Twitter. I don't know what oh, yeah. website it's, y'all it's on Instagram for sure. On Instagram. There we go. Well, dude, Darren, thank you for coming on. Hey, man, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.